Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. This morning, but before we get to John, we are going to take a detour and spend some time in the book of Exodus. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. We are going to be in John, but we need to get to Exodus first. And I will tell you why we're going to be in Exodus for a little while before we get into the gospel of John. This senior adult late in his life got disillusioned with the Bible. And so in the latter days of his life, he took a razor and he began to cut out parts of the New Testament that talked about Jesus' miracles, that talked about anything supernatural. And he glued those pieces back together. And he made these comments. He says, Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the Son of God. He called the writers of the New Testament, quote, ignorant, unlettered men who produced superstitions, fanaticisms, and fabrications. He called the Apostle Paul the first corrupter of the doctrine of Jesus. He dismissed the doctrine of the Trinity as mere abracadabra. So when he cut and pasted these pieces together, this is the product that came about. It was called the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Does anybody know what this is more famously called? It's called the Jefferson Bible. None other than Thomas Jefferson was the one that put that together. This is what Thomas Jefferson said to John Adams. He said, quote, The day will come when the mystical birth of Jesus by a supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classified as one of the greatest fables in all of history. <clears throat> Now, I don't mean to impugn Thomas Jefferson, but most of us know that he probably was not a born-again Christian. He's famous for cutting up the Bible and taking out parts that he didn't like and creating his own view of who Jesus is. Is it just a fable? Is Jesus just imposing himself on humanity and didn't really mean to? Is the virgin birth a fable? What are we to think about this? I've said it over and over again, and I will say it again. In order to worship the true Jesus, you need to know the true Jesus. And so for this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us on a journey through the book of Exodus to get us to the gospel of John. And here's why. You and I do not know our Old Testaments as well as the early writers of the New Testament did. And we're just, let's just be honest. How many of you are experts in the Old Testament? But John's original audience knew their Old Testament. So I'm going to take us there first to set the stage for the book of John. So let's read Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. We're going to camp out in Exodus, and it will make sense, okay? So you track with me for a while, it will make sense, I promise. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. This is God speaking to Moses. God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. 
exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make. This is where God tells Moses, I want you to make the tabernacle. I want you to make this portable tent. And what's the purpose that God tells Moses to make this portable tent? Right there in your Bible, it says, so that God may dwell in their presence. You see, the portable tent, the tabernacle, would be that one place on planet Earth where God would choose to dwell with his people. Now, we know that God is everywhere present, but in the Old Testament, God said, I'm choosing one space, a portable tent, and even within that portable tent in the Ark of the Covenant, I'm going to allow all of my glory, all of my majesty, all my dwelling place to be in that one physical structure, the tabernacle. I'm choosing to dwell there. But that wasn't good enough for Moses. Moses is like, God, I don't, I don't want you just to dwell in the tabernacle. I want to see your glory face to face, God. That was Moses' greatest desire, was to see the full glory of God face to face. And so let's see that unfold. In Exodus 33, verses 18 through 21. So go down to Exodus chapter 33. Skip over a few. Skip over the golden calf. That was a bad thing. This is after the golden calf. Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23. Listen to the heart of Moses. Exodus 33, 18. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but, sh- but my face shall not be seen. Well, what did Moses want to see? God, I want to see your glory face to face. And God says, uh-uh. Nobody sees my glory face to face and lives. So Moses, here's what I'm going to do for you because you're my servant. You've got a great desire. You want to see my glory. You can't see my full glory. You will be incinerated. Let me put you in the cleft of the rock. Let me hide you there and I will pass by and you can see the backside of my glory. But you dare not look in in my face and see my full glory or you will die. And that that was good enough for Moses at that time. But you see, wrapped up in God's glory is God's word. Right after this, right after God passes by and gives, God, gives Moses his glory, God gives him the Ten Commandments the second time. What happened the first time Moses got the Ten Commandments? He walks down the mountain and they're having an orgy down there with the golden calf and Moses is angry and he throws down the, the, gold, the tablets. And so let's pick up in Exodus chapter 34 verses 1 through 8, and let's see how God reveals his glory in his word to Moses. Exodus 34, let's just keep reading. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. 
And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. God reveals his glory and God reveals his character. And what does he say? I am a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. The word steadfast love is that Hebrew word chesed. Let's say it all together. Chesed. And don't spit on the person when you're saying it. It's, it's an Old Testament word that means God's tenacious, loyal, powerful, self-sacrificing love that he has for his people. God's faithfulness. God's love and God's faithfulness. Okay. God's dwelling place, God's word, God's glory. Now at the end of Exodus, after they've built the tabernacle to the instructions that God wants them to build it, we find this image at the end of the book of Exodus. So let's go to the very end. Exodus chapter 40. Look at just the last few verses of the entire book of Exodus. Verses 34 through 38. It's, it's, it's a commentary on the tabernacle. The portable tent where God chose to dwell. This is where God's word was in the tabernacle. God's dwelling was in the tabernacle. And here we see God's glory in the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, inside of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The cloud. This is called the Shekinah glory cloud of God. God said in the Old Testament, I'm going to make all of my presence dwell in the tabernacle and I'm going to put my word in the tabernacle and I'm going to let my glory cloud settle on the tabernacle and that's all Israel's going to get to see. You will not see my face. You will not see me. You will know I'm with you when you see the cloud. Now later on, they built a temple. A temple was the permanent structure. You remember the, the tabernacle was a portable tent that they wandered throughout the wilderness. And, and then finally under Solomon, King David's son, they built the temple. And the same thing happened in the temple. When they brought the Ark of the Covenant, God's word, into the temple in 1 Kings, verses eight through, uh, 1 Kings 8, uh, chapter, chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, it says this. When the priests came out of the holy temple, the holy place, 
a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Okay. I want you to think about some images here. Where did God dwell? Tabernacle. What was in the tabernacle? The Word. What was the tabernacle all about? God's glory. What was God's character he revealed to Abraham? He's a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, why have I taken you on this tour of the Old Testament? You need to know this. Because when we get to John, everything that John teaches is going to go directly back to what we just looked at. And we don't know our Old Testament the way that they did, so I've taken you on this Old Testament journey so that when we read the Gospel of John, you're like, okay, I get it now. Here's what I'm supposed to understand. So, with that ringing in your ears, with those images, I want us to go to the first part of of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Up to this point in the Gospel of John... He's referred to Jesus as the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's the light of the world. John has not gotten specific as to who the identity of the Word is. Now, we know it's Jesus. But now, he's going to laser-like focus and say, Listen, the Word is none other than Jesus Christ. And so I want you to think about the images. God's dwelling place. God's tabernacle, God's glory, God's word, God's grace. Are you ready? With those images in your mind, let's read John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word, everybody there, John chapter 1, verse 1, verse verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see the words there? The Word became flesh. And what did he do? He dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory as of one full of grace and truth. You see Moses' name show up there. Do you see that no one can see God? You see, this is the apex, this is the crescendo where John is leading us to. What has John shown us all along? Jesus has always existed as God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the source of life. He's the sort of source of life. He's the one that causes us to be born again. He's the one that we have to receive, we have to believe. And when we do that, we have the right to become children of God. But now... John says, here's the most important thing I've been hitting at. Jesus, the eternal Son of God who's always existed, left the glories of heaven and came in the flesh. Came to planet earth. Came to live among us to accomplish God's plan. 
And not just as any old man, but to blow our minds, Jesus came as fully God and fully man. The God-man. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come. This is called the incarnation. Incarnation. It's Latin for in the flesh. It just simply means Jesus left the glories of heaven and came in the flesh and added humanity to his divinity. We read it earlier during our scripture reading time. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the word was God, the word was with God, he did not account equality a, a thing with, a, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what's the big deal about Jesus coming in the flesh? Why is it so important? It is essential to our salvation that Jesus come in the flesh. Because if he had not come in the flesh, he could not die on the cross in the flesh and save us from our sins. But here's the point. Without Jesus coming in the flesh, we would be hopeless, helpless, and hell-bound in our sins without him coming in the flesh. We'd be hopeless. We'd be helpless. We would be hell-bound in our sins. We'd be alienated from God. We would not have the right to become children of God. We would not be able to be born again. We would not be able to have eternal life. None of that would be possible without Jesus coming in the flesh. Paul says it this way in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. At just the right time, God sent Jesus to be born in the flesh. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at three very essential truths that John lays out for us of why the incarnation, why Jesus coming in the flesh is so important. I mean, John has been pushing us toward this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why is that so important? Three things. Here's the first one. Jesus came into the flesh to display God's glory, God's grace, and God's truth as his one and only son. Now, with all that stuff from the Old Testament book of Exodus ringing in your ear, I want to show you something. The tabernacle. Where did God choose to dwell in the Old Testament? In the tabernacle, right? What was in the tabernacle? The word. What was in the tabernacle? God's dwelling. What was there? God's glory. John knows this. And so he chooses a very, very important word in, verses, in verse 14. Here's what it says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. It doesn't mean that Jesus just appeared in the flesh or Jesus changed into the flesh. It's not this idea that somehow Jesus stopped being God and then became the man, that he switched from divinity to humanity. No, Jesus never subtracts anything. He's always been God. He just adds humanity to his divinity. He comes in the flesh as God in the flesh. But I want you to notice something. You don't get this in your English translations. But if you know Greek which most of you probably don't, let me give you the translation for the word dwelt. 
The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Pitched His tent among us. Now, think about it this way. Not what is the tabernacle, not what is the temple. The question now is who is the tabernacle and who is the temple? And the answer is it's Jesus. Jesus is the full dwelling place of God. Where did God choose to dwell in the Old Testament? In the tabernacle. Where is God choosing to dwell now? In Jesus. Jesus comes in the flesh. He tabernacled among us. God's dwelling place now is not a physical structure just reserved for the high priest to go in once a year and to offer sacrifices. The dwelling place of God is not a place. It's a person and all people have access to this Jesus. He's the dwelling place of God. The word became flesh. Think of the words there. The word. Where was the, what was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament? The word. What did God do in the Old Testament with the tabernacle? He dwelt there. But what else was there? God's glory. The Shekinah glory of God rested on the tabernacle. What does John say there in verse 14? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Do you know that the word dwell in the Greek language sounds awfully similar to the word Shekinah? It's a play on words that John uses there. He's saying Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. He's the full glory of God. And I want to just introduce you to a word that John thinks is important. It's the word glory. Jesus is the glory of God. Here's the whole point of Jesus' mission in coming in the flesh. Jesus comes to bring glory to God. That's Jesus' mission, to bring glory to God. Listen to him praying in John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. He's talking about the cross. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus' heartbeat from the moment he was born to the moment he was hanging on the cross was, I want everything to be about God's glory. He's full of glory. Jesus displays the full glory of God in a body. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2.9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's an amazing thing to think about. All of the fullness and glory of God resides in Jesus, who has a a human body, fully God, fully man. We will see this as we go through the Gospel of John, but Jesus puts his full glory on display in his miracles. At the first sign, at the wedding of Canaan, when he turns the water into wine in John 2, 11, we'll get there in a few weeks. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory And the disciples believed him. So Jesus is God's glory in his incarnation. Jesus is God's glory in his miracles. But Jesus is ultimately God's glory in the cross. 
In John 12, 27 to 28, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, listen to what his heartbeat is before he goes to the cross. John 12, 27 to 28. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, this hour of the cross. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. What's, Jesus's, what's on Jesus' mind as he's about to go to the cross? Father, I want it to be all about your glory. Glorify your name. Jesus is the glory of God. He wants to put God's glory on display. Everything Jesus did was for God's glory. And think about the greater privilege than we had than Moses ever did. Moses could not see God in the face and live. He had to be hid in the cleft of the rock. What privilege do we have now? We don't have to be hid in the cleft of the rock. We can see the full glory of God in the face of Christ. Think about this, Christians. You have a greater privilege than Moses ever had. Yeah, Moses got to see the backside glory of God, but you get to see Jesus, the full glory of God, face to face. And you don't have to be destroyed. You can live. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where's the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. But notice how John describes Jesus. Verse 14. The Word, Jesus, became flesh. He dwelt, he tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Yours may say the begotten Son. It's a Greek word that means unique, one of a kind, only. One and only. I think the NIV translates it one and only. Monogenes the one and only Son. It's the same word used in John 3.16. He's the one and only Son. Now, why would John have to say Jesus is the one and only Son? Because in our confused culture, what do people think? Well, you can have Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus Buddha. Jesus plus Allah. Jesus plus Oprah. Jesus plus whatever. And John says no. He is the only, one and only, unique Son of God come in the flesh, and we'll find out later on, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets the Father through Him. He's the only Son. But notice what, God, what John says about this only Son. The Word became flesh. He dwelt or tabernacled among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. But what's He full of? Grace and truth. Hmm, sound familiar? Grace and truth. What did God reveal to Moses back in Exodus? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Grace and truth. Saying the same thing. In the Old Testament, over and over again, steadfast love and faithfulness are put together as God's major characteristic. He's a God of steadfast love, mercy, and he's a God of faithfulness. He's a God of truth. He's a God of steadfast love. He's a God of faithfulness. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 25, verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and testimony. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 26, 3. For steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. And so in the Old Testament, it was steadfast love and faithfulness. In the New Testament, it's 
Grace and truth, it's the same thing. So Jesus is the full embodiment of all that hesed love and faithfulness and truth and and grace that God showed in the Old Testament. Now Jesus is showing it in his body in the flesh, coming to give us grace and truth, his glory, the one and only Son of God. And none of that happens unless Jesus comes in the flesh. He comes in the flesh, he dwells among us, we see his glory, we receive grace and truth as the one and only unique son of God. But here's the second thing that Jesus coming in the flesh gives us. And it says it right there in verse 16 and 17. Secondly, Jesus came in the flesh to give us the gift of salvation by grace instead of relying on our own good works. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. The fullness of who God is. You know, Colossians 1.19 says, for in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. What did we we receive from Jesus, from his fullness? Grace upon grace. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, the law came through Moses. Those of you that are coming to my Wednesday night class on Hebrews, we know this. The Old Testament's inferior. The Old Testament passed away. It had its place. It had its time. The sacrificial system was good. The law of Moses was good. All of that was in God's economy in the Old Testament. But what could it never do? It could never fully forgive you of sins it can never get to the root of the problem it could never pull your it can never uh, atone for your sins completely and totally the law of moses comes up short and what jesus says here is he comes to give us what grace upon grace not works of the law you can't get into a relationship with god by doing good things that's a big lie but i meet so many people that think that if they just do something for god they'll get into heaven Let me give you some passages of Scripture that tell us the exact opposite. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who's unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the good things you do for God, on your best day, when you're doing everything good for God, he says, listen, it's like a polluted garment. And I'm not going to give you what the Hebrew imagery is there. It's gross. I can't tell you in in a public worship service among children. But he says, it's gross. Even the best efforts you have to give to God, it's, it's, it's not worth it. You can't do enough to earn God's favor. It's got to be grace upon grace. Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not, is not justified, is not saved, is not in a right standing by works of the law. But how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By doing good deeds, by trying hard, by obeying the Ten Commandments, by going to church, all these things, you're not going to be in God's good standing. It's filthy rags. You need grace upon grace. You need grace upon grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace... You've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. If if you did something to get into God's good graces, the moment you stepped foot into heaven, you'd have room to boast. Look what I did. 
God must love me because I did something to earn this. None of us can do that. Even the faith we have to believe in Jesus is a gift. Now, all throughout the first couple of verses here of the Gospel of John, what term has he been using to describe Jesus? The Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. Who's the Word? Well, look at verse 17. It's the very first time the name is mentioned. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through. Oh, here's the identity of the Word. Jesus Christ. It's the first time the term Jesus Christ is used here. He, he brings it down to, 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 to the apex. I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one that gives me grace. So, Jesus gives us grace. Jesus is the glory of God. He's the word of God. He's the dwelling of God. He's, he's full of grace and truth. It's not by works of the law. But here's the third thing, and this is where it gets a little interesting. I'm going to have to explain it. Jesus came in the flesh to, quote, tell the whole story, unquote, of God's plan for our salvation. Now, now let me unpack what I mean by tell the whole story. What does verse 18 say? No one's ever seen God. What did Moses want to do? Moses wanted to see God, right? Moses, I want to see you, God. No, you can't see me, Moses. Let me put you in the cleft of the rock. Okay, that's fine. I'll see your backside glory. But Moses really wanted to see God. And John here says nobody's ever seen God. Nobody's ever seen God except who? The only God. Now, your translation may say the only Son. In the Greek text, it really is the only God. What John is doing here is he's protecting Jesus's divinity by saying that Jesus is God. No one has ever seen God the Father except for Jesus. And where's Jesus? He's at the Father's side. Now, yours may say he's in the bosom of the Father. He's at the Father's side. He's in the Father's bosom. What does this mean, that Jesus is at the Father's side? It's a term for the closest knit of intimacy between two beings. Now, we can't conceive of the close-knit unity and fellowship and intimacy between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. We can't conceive of it. The closest thing we've got is this. Husbands and wives, you know what I'm talking about. When you're laying in bed in the privacy of your room and your head is on the chest or the bosom of your spouse, you tell secrets, you share hopes and dreams, and you pray together, and you have conversations in that bedroom that, are privy to nobody else on planet earth. It's the most intimate place you can be in the bosom of the person you love. That's the image here of the relationship between father and son. That the eternal father, creator, and the eternal son, Jesus, have always lived in perfect unity and fellowship and togetherness and close-knit unity, which means that Contrary to popular opinion, God wasn't lonely, so he had to create people. I'm up in heaven, and I'm so lonely that I need people. Let me create a bunch of sinful people down there to keep me happy. No, God was not lonely. God could have existed in eternity past with the Trinity in perfect fellowship and unity and intimacy and never once created us. He does not need us to somehow satisfy something in him. Here's the beauty of it, though. God chose to create us, not because he needed us, because he did it out of an overflow of his love for us. 
and that love between Father and Son that we will never experience, that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father, He is going to do something with that love. Now, here's the, here's the mind-blowing thing about what Jesus is going to do about that love. The love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father, Jesus is going to do. And here's what we find out. At the very last phrase there, He has made Him known. Greek word exegete. Jesus has exegeted the Father. Now, what in the world is exegete? That that helps me out a lot, Sean. Here's what I do every Sunday. I exegete the Scriptures for you. Now, you you may not think, I thought he's just preaching. No, I'm doing what's called exegetical preaching. Let me explain to you what I mean. And you know this intuitively if you sat under my preaching for any long amount of time. Do we not go verse by verse, and we explain, and we unpack, and we expand, and we give deeper meaning, and we expand upon what the text is. Is that that not what I do, hopefully? Hopefully you're like, if I don't do that, I'm in trouble. Okay, that's what exegete means. Now, it says Jesus does that to the Father, so here's what it means. Jesus explains the Father Jesus narrates who the Father is. Jesus communicates who the Father is. Jesus exposes the Father. Jesus unpacks the Father. Whatever word you want to use, Jesus, if you want to see the full glory of the Father, Jesus is going to unpack it for us. And John says, that's the rest of the book of the uh, the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to show us. He's going to narrate. He's going to tell the whole story. He's going to exegete who the Father is. So if you want to know who God is, Jesus is going to make him known he's going to make him known 